Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. I am your host, Shauna St. Terrell. Today we have with us Dr. Lisa Elwood. Dr. Elwood is a psychologist who specializes in trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, with an emphasis on survivors of sexual and physical assault. She's listed as a quality provider of cognitive processing therapy, or CPT, an empirically supported treatment for PTSD. Dr. Elwood is an associate professor at the University of Indianapolis, where she teaches doctoral students in clinical psychology. In addition to teaching and therapy, Dr. Elwood also stays active in research. So welcome to the show, Dr. Elwood. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to talk to people in different fields and with different levels of experience about this topic that's so important to me. Awesome. Well, I'm so, so happy you're here. People, I think the term, you're, you are an expert in trauma. That is for sure. And I think, I think of trauma, you know, that term gets knocked around so much at this point in time. What actually is the definition of trauma? I'll start by saying, and this will be my preface for kind of the whole thing, is that there are always going to be different opinions. I'm going to do my best to summarize what I think are the, the most prevalent opinions in the field, and I'll try to clarify when some people may disagree with things that I'm going to say. Within my field, within clinical psychology, we have specific criteria related to PTSD about what makes something a PTSD-relevant trauma or not. So when I talk about the definition of trauma, that's what I'm going to. There will be some people that might disagree in some ways, but I think if you're looking for a set definition of trauma, this is the clearest you can get. And I agree with you. I think we, in in regular conversation, people use the term trauma in a lot of different ways. I've heard people talk about being traumatized by a TV show they watched or something that happened that they were unhappy about or or got stressed about. I was traumatized by the test I took in my class or things like that. And I think in in your Victim Blame podcast, I heard you talk about using rape very casually. And I think the same thing can happen with trauma. In my field, when we talk about trauma, it specifically has to be an event that includes some exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. Occupations that have a lot of exposure to traumatic material, uh, individuals can find themselves developing trauma symptoms themselves in response to the level of detail that they go into with traumatic material. Now, they're really clear to say this doesn't include just watching a movie, watching TV, seeing something in a story on the news. Those things aren't at the level when they're talking about being exposed to someone else's trauma. It's in a very detailed nature, repeatedly and over time. I get asked a lot, how do you do this every day? How can you hear these stories and have to try to help people who have been through this and not lose your mind? 
that's it's honestly a good question tell them i'm like well first of all i don't think it's for everyone because it is really difficult and for some people it's just too much i know i think for some people it also has a shelf life i've seen people who've kind of had to leave the area for a little bit and then maybe like just rest their brains and their hearts and then they come back and get back in there and then i always talk to people about making sure you have a healthy outlet whatever it is that kind of helps restore you and i know we're going to talk a little bit later on about the different things that people can do to help survivors this process. But I also definitely think we should talk about what to do for people who are exposed to the trauma as well, even if it's not the direct exposure. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. So let's talk about what are some of the possible mental health outcomes that occur following a sexual assault traumatic experience? Absolutely. There's a wide range of ways people can respond. And one thing that I like to say that can help people understand the wide variety of reactions people might have to trauma is to think about how people respond to grief or the death of a loved one. So you, if you know someone who loses a loved one, you can see a, a lot of different possible responses. You have the, the person who is devastated and spends all their time crying and and can't quite even do day-to-day tasks. You might have the person that goes into task mode, and that's the one that's planning the funeral, that's calling all of the places, paying the bills. You have that goal-oriented person. You might have the denial person that just isn't even willing to admit that it happened. You might have the angry person who's snapping at people and pushing people away. And all of those are reactions people have to grief. And when we think about trauma, we actually see very similar patterns. When we go into long-term responses and thinking about mental health consequences, there's a few different common things. And these are, some of them are the more general, more common mental health difficulties just in life being depression or anxiety. And both of these terms, I think, also get tossed around a lot. I'm so depressed. Again, my favorite show ended or uh, I thought I had this wonderful dinner and I didn't get it. So now I'm depressed. Um, But true depression is something that is all consuming and takes up most of the day every day for at least two weeks. So this is something the person is just really consumed by and generally includes or has to include depressed mood. So just kind of that feeling sad and down um, or a loss of interest or pleasure in things they normally enjoy. I didn't know that there was actually like a time put on it. You said the two weeks. Um, That's interesting to know. So so I guess that's to make sure it's not just like a fleeting down in the dumps kind of thing. And if it's like sustained for a little bit longer, then we Absolutely. Okay. And that's something I talk about with clients, particularly if we're wrapping up treatment. Some variation in mood is normal. We all have bad days. We have days we wake up, we're cranky. We don't feel like going to work or dealing with our family, one or two bad days doesn't mean you're at the level of sort of a clinical problem or a mental health issue. It's really when things become really persistent and really consuming that it's more days than not this is what I'm going through. That's a a good guide for trying to figure out if this is kind of a normal bad day or something more like a depression. Gotcha. Yeah. And then anxiety, um, again, anxiety is 
can be similar. So we all have anxious thoughts occasionally. Anxiety, when it, when it starts to take over, anxiety is more worried about something that may or may not happen in the future. That includes a lot of avoidance of things that are perceived to be dangerous and includes maybe some safety planning and preparation. We also find a lot of people who go through trauma develop very negative coping strategies, and that might take the form of substance use, self-harm behaviors, other types of negative coping skills. When we're talking about sexual assault, you might see an over-sexualization or someone who goes into risky sexual behaviors or things like that. So we see these strategies are often done as in an attempt to either numb kind of emotions that they're experiencing or to distract from it. So there's something about that experience in those trauma reactions that is so unbearable that they'll engage in some of these other behaviors to try not to have to deal with it. And so we see, we see problems in these areas in a lot of trauma survivors as well. That makes sense. And, you know, as I sit here and think about it, I'm kind of connecting a lot of dots too. And I think about certain cases I've had, and it certainly all makes sense. Before we move on to the next topic, I want to make sure we clarify a point because you and I have been talking about sexual trauma or sexual assault, traumatic experience or sexual violence. I want to make sure everybody understands that, first of all, it could be a child or adult who has experienced this. And also, when we say violence, I don't mean that force is required. Oftentimes there is no quote unquote force as somebody might like think of it normally like, you know, at knife point or gunpoint or physically harming them. That is not necessarily what it looks like. It can be coercion or, you know, there's a biological response to trauma, fight, flight, or freeze, and a lot of people freeze. So I just want to make sure that we make that point so nobody thinks that we're talking only about a specific subset of sexual assaults. I think that is a really important clarification there. So I agree with you. Thank you. That's so true. And I think a lack of awareness is still, we're coming, like we're getting better. But lack of awareness is still a huge issue amongst everyone, loved ones, police officers, prosecutors jurors yes <laughs> they walk into the room and they think that everything they expect it to be a certain way which is I think how we just have viewed things as a society for a long time and through movies and tv shows and whatever and people think it's going to be you know the stranger lurking in the bushes who jumps out and assaults a person does that happen sure is that the vast majority of assaults no most mm-hmm. people know they're perpetrators and so that adds with it a whole other host of you know ancillary issues So let's talk PTSD. First of all, again, a term that gets thrown around like it's a million different things that it's not. What really is PTSD? So PTSD, it's a unique reaction in that it is a a diagnosis or a disorder that requires trauma exposure. So you cannot have PTSD, according to our, our diagnostic criteria, if you haven't experienced a traumatic event. And there's some people will, will try to talk about PTSD to sort of more normal life stressors. And the way our, our criteria are set up is that that's not even actually possible. 
there's a few different types of symptoms that someone experiences and has to have in order to meet criteria for PTSD. Our first group of symptoms are what we call the re-experiencing symptoms. So there's some way in which they are continuously being reminded and feeling as though they're re-experiencing the trauma. So some of the more obvious ones in that group are things like nightmares and flashbacks. So they're not avoiding the trauma. They're having these constant unwanted reminders kind of popping through and constant a little bit of exaggerated but frequent reminders. Uh, the second group of symptoms is avoidance, which I think is really important because, and I'll end up talking probably a lot about some of the symptoms of PTSD that are mis misunderstood by others because that's, that's one of the reasons I love to talk to people who aren't in my field is to try and normalize and explain some of these reactions. So avoidance, not wanting to think, talk about, or feel things related to the event, and or not wanting to be around people, places, or things that remind them of the event. So for those of us that work in this field, that's very challenging because our job is to get someone to talk about their trauma. If they have PTSD, they want to avoid it. And so that can be a delicate balance there in, in trying to. And I think avoidance can sometimes people might at one point recant what they said happened. So they, they report something and later say, no, no, that didn't actually happen. If you think about the high level of avoidance these individuals want, they don't want to talk about it. They're realizing they're going through this process. People are trying to get all this information. Sometimes it's easier to say, no, that didn't actually happen. Or I don't remember and just say, I don't know. That's easier than having to go into all of these things that they do not want to talk about. So when we're working with trauma survivors, we don't want to underestimate the power of avoidance. Uh, after that, we have negative changes in thoughts and feelings, and this can show up in a lot of different areas. It does overlap with depression some, so we see some similar symptoms there. One of the key ones that I, I want to highlight here is this includes self-blame. Self-blame for typically for the traumatic event itself uh, can also be self-blame for other things in life. And I think that is a really confusing one for people who aren't educated about or informed on trauma. As an outsider, it's very easy to hear someone say, oh, that wasn't assault. I, it's my fault. I did X, Y, Z that person's not to blame, I'm to blame. And if you take someone at their word, that lets you off the hook. So this person says it's their fault, it's not a trauma, okay, it's not a trauma. And then that's a lot simpler. Uh, but self-blame is actually, because it is a symptom of PTSD, we do very frequently hear survivors taking responsibility for things that they actually aren't responsible for. Some of them. Would that be things like, well, I was drinking that night or, you know, I did kiss him and so that gave him the wrong ideas of that kind of thing that you see? It sounds like even the victim sometimes is using those cultural issues they have against themselves too. It's not just other people, it's lack of awareness is everyone. And then it's just kind of interesting to see how it manifests here when you have someone who's been through it and they're kind of thinking those same things about themselves. Um, I, to an extent, I would assume that's some like a defense mechanism. Absolutely. And, 
not just a symptom of PTSD. And that was something I was thinking as I listened to the victim blame one, which I keep referencing because I listened to it very recently, is that, yes, victim blaming occurs by other people. And that's so important because that influences many opportunities individuals get and choices they have. But we, it's also important that victims blame themselves in each of these same ways. So if I took the dark alley shortcut on the way home instead of staying on the well-lit road, I blame myself. I, I made a risky choice, so this must be my fault. Rather than putting the blame on the perpetrator, which is where it actually belongs. And those classic ones of the outfit somebody wore or drinking too much or any of these things, all of those victim blame ideas that we hear in our culture Victims have heard them too, and when they're trying to make sense of what happened, they end up having many of these same thoughts, and in the treatment that I do, self-blame is really important, and that's something we spend a lot of time talking about. In what ways is this individual blaming themselves and taking responsibility that isn't accurate and isn't theirs to take and making sure the responsibility is actually being put on the perpetrator who made these decisions and is the one that actually should be held accountable. Yeah, in terms of victim blaming, it's all kinds of different stuff. You can have the symptoms of PTSD be used against a victim to blame them. You have um, the neurobiology of trauma in the moment during the trauma, which I alluded to before, where I've said this like a thousand times, but there is no instruction manual on when you're a victim of sexual violence. And people are always like, oh, well, I would have done this. You know, you don't know. And, yeah. and, and you don't get to press pause. <laughs> There's no pause button. Let me think about my options. You don't even have control over it in that moment. And so then if the, again, if the victim doesn't uh, act according to whatever things that you think that they should do, then they're like, well, did it really happen? And it's like, you we have to do better about educating everyone to understand that some of these behaviors may be counterintuitive, but it does not mean that the person is lying or that it didn't happen. Uh, and that's something we talk about in this treatment too, is that fight, flight, and freeze. And I think it's so important that our culture judges those responses and the fight becomes the glorified, strong, brave, right response flight is kind of in the middle and the freeze is so misunderstood. And I think you know better than I do, but in legal situations can often be interpreted as consent because this person didn't fight back. That must mean they were voluntarily participating. And that's something that we talk about that these responses are instinctual. They're evolutionarily developed and your sort of person is going to do what they can to help you get through this event with as little damage in, as possible. And sometimes that's freeze. That's so important. And that's something that our trauma victims and that our clients blame themselves for too. Why didn't I fight back? Why didn't I flee? And having to provide that education on freeze response is, it's actually a really adaptive response. It protects your body in some ways. It helps you survive. And it's not something that needs to be judged. I really appreciate that point because it's so true. It's like, oh, if you fought back, then good for you. But if you froze, then what's wrong with you? And nothing is wrong with you. So I'm so happy that you pointed that out. So getting back to PTSD real quick, 
What else, any other symptoms that crop up that you see often? Any yes, thank you. There's actually one more cluster. So thank you for bringing me back. The final one is the hyperarousal cluster. The most sort of obvious symptoms of that are being on guard, being jumpy, kind of restless and in, in looking for danger. The ones that I think I, I like to mention because I think they're helpful and again can be misunderstood are irritability. Irritability is actually a, a symptom of PTSD and self-destructive or reckless behaviors. Those are symptoms of PTSD as well. And I think all anyone who's worked in the field and, and is trying to help survivors and victims, we have times where you think you're making good progress and someone does something that seems to, to set them back or seems different than what you would you would have hoped for for them. And I think understanding this, that these self-destructive risk behaviors are actually part of PTSD can help hopefully individuals working with, with those people know and still have that compassion and that patience of this is larger than just this person wanting to be difficult. It's That's not what's going on here. Typic sometimes maybe, but typically it's part of a bigger picture. Kind of goes back and it's another one that is, I think, challenging for people, right? So people, again, go back to thinking, oh, if this had happened, then they wouldn't act in this manner. And so it's another victim blaming thing, I would assume. Absolutely. And it makes it easier to give up on them. So if I have this person that's irritable, they're, you know, yelling, you get yelled at, you get yelled at down the hall. They're telling you how much they hate you. They don't want their your help. They don't want to be part of this. And they're engaging in risky and self-destructive behaviors. It's easier to say, okay, we're just done. <laughs> Let's Clearly, you don't want help, and um, and absolutely, let me, I just want to be really clear, I don't force help on people, and we would never want to do that to take away a person's right to choose, but sometimes people will give up on people earlier than is helpful because some of these things are hard sometimes to, to handle. And I'm, and I'm speaking right now from a provider's and helper's point of view, but you think about the family members and the friends too, who are all of a sudden this person that they knew has become really angry and snappy and they're, they're engaging in these bad behaviors. And I, I also want to say, kind of going back to our beginning this is only one type of presentation. So it's not the case that everyone with PTSD ends up being super irritable and, and risky. That's kind of one, a couple of symptoms I'm picking on, but I'm, I'm doing that because I think these are ones that we don't always expect. We kind of expect people to be on the lookout for danger. We expect people to be jumpy. We expect people to not be sleeping well and to be having nightmares, but we don't always expect people to be really angry and to be making risky behaviors. Those are things that I think can, can be confusing and can catch people off guard. And a couple points on that. Um, I think it's important to know that kids exhibit a lot of these symptoms of PTSD when other people don't know that there was a trauma because a lot of kids don't disclose sexual abuse to their parents or whomever, loved ones or authority figures. And so they live with it for a long time. And then sometimes it does start coming out, you know, who knows how much longer far out 
five months, five years, whatever. And then maybe they're doing some of these self-destructive behaviors and they were a straight A student and now they're failing all their classes and they're acting out sexually or whatever. And I think people are getting a little bit better um, aware of that, that that could be something that is a symptom of what has gone on. And in terms of people, and I definitely probably am pointing this out more for the criminal justice system, to remember to be patient with these victims, because again, some of these feelings and things that are happening are normal responses to the trauma that they've been through, especially if they've been through a lot of trauma. And I've told, I, I saw this so many times with trafficking victims. I mean, I've been told to F off like every way under the sun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that it really wasn't about me and so you know you for me I just had to take a step back and give them their space and let them come to some things some realizations on their own and I was always having those conversations with police officers because you know when they're getting verbally berated and sometimes trying to fight them I know it's hard to keep that in mind but you know this is just the tip of the iceberg for a lot of these kids that we're coming in contact with and we all have to remember to be patient with them and as best we can on their journey through this because it is not an easy one. Yes. The treatment I do focuses uh, on belief systems and talks about how people view themselves, other people in the world, and specifically looks at changes that ways trauma can change views about safety, trust, power and control, esteem, and intimacy. So when you think about authority figures, people who haven't been through trauma and not wanting to go too much into, but certainly some disadvantaged groups have reasons to maybe not trust or beliefs that they don't trust authority as much. But many people kind of grow up believing authority is going to do what's in my best interest, I, I should cooperate and trust them. And if you've been through a traumatic life, you've been let down many times by authority, you've been betrayed in your experience, it, authority may be dangerous. And so some of these really challenging behaviors are both the ind individual's kind of coping skills based on how they view life. And sometimes they may be sort of testing to see, is this person going to betray me? Is this person also going to leave before they can develop that trust that you are actually someone who cares about me and isn't going to leave as soon as it gets hard and wants my best interest. So there is sometimes that, and I think anytime you work with Anyway, there's that relationship development, but it can be so important with trauma survivors to establish that sense of trust and that, that relationship. Very good point. Do all victims of sexual assault have PTSD? No, they don't. And, and that's a helpful thing to keep in mind. PTSD is a common response to trauma, but it is not the only response to trauma. And it's not something that everyone who goes through trauma develops. Uh, rape and sexual assault have high rates of PTSD. Rape has been identified as one of the trauma events with the highest rates of PTSD. And so we know that PTSD is common, but PTSD is not the only outcome, and many people don't develop PTSD. And you kind of mentioned this before, but if someone does have PTSD, the level of severity can often differ too, right? 
yes, there's a, a very wide range. In order to meet criteria for PTSD, they have to have some symptoms in each of those areas, but not all of them. So the person who has kind of a few symptoms in different areas is going to look very different from the person who has all of the symptoms, where the focus is maybe different from person to person. A lot of it is likely influenced by that person's life prior to the trauma. Such a good point. You bring all of your life experiences into it when you when something like this happens, just like you do in any other experience. And it's going to definitely depend on what you've been through and the different coping mechanisms that you've developed as time has gone on. So what are some signs that an individual might benefit from therapy? So maybe if somebody's been through this or they know a loved one who's been through this, what are some of the signs you can look for in yourself and somebody else and think, you know what, this might be a good idea for me to go down that road? Absolutely. And I'll start by saying that I think everybody can benefit from therapy at some point in their lives. So if you think maybe therapy could be helpful, it probably would be. I do think that sometimes people just get in their mind, because I've been through trauma, I have to do therapy on it or related to it. I don't think that's always the case either. So trying to think about when it comes to trauma symptoms and PTSD, what we know is that immediately following a traumatic event, almost everybody will have these symptoms, these PTSD-like symptoms. They're very common reactions immediately following the event. So having them right away doesn't necessarily mean they won't go away. Some people, a lot of people will have them kind of go away over time and, and sort of go back to maybe a normal or, or not exactly normal, a new normal, but they won't have PTSD. There's a couple periods that are important. The first one is a one month following the trauma. That's to have PTSD, you have to be at least one month out from the traumatic event. That's our first time period where we say if it hasn't gone away on its own, it might be more likely to benefit from some additional assistance and help. Now, they're also sort of before PTSD, there's another disorder called acute stress disorder, which is that from when it happened to the one month period. So if individuals are experiencing high level of symptoms, there, there is a diagnosis for that. There are treatments for that as well. So it's definitely not, don't go into therapy until one month. Um, but if someone's on the fence about whether or not they want therapy, you could wait a month and see. The other big time point is three months. And that, that's where we tend to consider it to become more chronic, would be after three months. So individuals that have been struggling with these symptoms, kind of very often it's interfering with their lives. They've, they've allowed some time to go by. They've done everything they can think of kind of to do on their own, and they're not going away. That's a time that it would suggest, you know, seeking therapy might be really helpful. So we're talking a lot about people with PTSD immediately following or sometime following the actual trauma. What about for people who were sexually abused as a child and then they recover the memories later on that they maybe repressed for all that time? Can they experience PTSD then once they're just recovering all of the memories of what happened to them? You can develop PTSD later. There's a delayed onset PTSD. Repressed memories as a whole controversial subject that I'm not going to get into. A lot of times, and this is a symptom that I haven't mentioned yet, but within PTSD, memory loss is very common. A lot of times what we'll see is people 
sort of have a vague memory that something might have happened and then the rest of the memory kind of comes up or fills out later. That can certainly happen. The other way we might see this delayed reactions could be sometimes with sexual assault in childhood. The children don't actually know what's going on. If there's not a lot of physical violence, it may not, they may not have some of those strong emotional reactions to it. So sometimes what you might see is when kids get older and they start to learn about sex and they learn, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen, that's not normal, then at that point, their view of the event will change and they may start to experience distress and trauma symptoms at that time, even though the event happened a number of years earlier. Now, of course, many children, even if they don't know exactly why it's wrong, will have uh, distress reactions right away. But that is one trauma type where we do sometimes see that delayed, we, especially see that delayed reaction would be if they don't really understand what happened at the time. That's interesting stuff. Um, okay, so why don't we talk a little bit about what the therapy options are for someone who has experienced sexual trauma? Absolutely. And this is a, an area that I'm really interested in because I think as someone who wouldn't, if someone wasn't in the mental health field, Finding therapy options is very confusing. There's so many different names out there. There's so many different types of clinicians. There's different types of therapy. And I think the general person doesn't really know what they're looking for. And so, you know, back in the day when, when I was younger, you'd look in the phone book and you'd, whoever has the biggest picture, maybe you'd contact that person. Now it might be when you Google trauma therapy, what's the first one to come up or who has the best reviews and, and different sites, which are not as helpful ways always to, to make a choice. So it's important that, that people understand there's a lot of different options out there. And therapy can vary a lot depending on who you're working with. So one thing that I, and I'm sort of jumping ahead of myself, but one thing I like to say is if you meet with someone and you don't feel comfortable with them, if you don't like them or you don't think it's working, don't think that you have to be stuck with that person just because you started with them. There's other options out there. And the most important thing is that you can trust and feel comfortable with this person. Um, so important because I've had so many people are like, well, I went and it did not work for me. I did not like her. And I'm like, well, I don't think it's necessarily therapy that's not working for you. I think it's that particular clinician who isn't working for you. So let's find somebody who you do click with because that is so important. Absolutely. You're not, especially with trauma, you're, when you're asking people to talk about trauma, it's so sensitive. It's so stressful to try and do that with someone you don't trust or you don't feel comfortable with. That's asking too much if you ask me. So if you're trying to work with someone and it doesn't feel right, there's another option. And, and yes, I know it takes time and it's difficult. It's frustrating to start over, but it might be better than just staying with someone that you don't have a good relationship with. The other thing is sometimes the approach that you're, you're taking with someone doesn't seem like it's working. So maybe you do even like this person you enjoy talking to them, you're going, but it doesn't really seem like anything's changing. One thing that I think can be confusing is sometimes our clients or our patients and professions will vary which term they use, think that clinicians know what's best for them 
all the time. They must know. I don't, I'm not seeing any change, but they haven't said anything. So this must be what therapy is. And I'll tell you, we're making educated guesses. <laughs> so it's helpful to get feedback. And if you're kind of thinking you're frustrated or you feel like things aren't working or aren't changing, that's a great thing to have a conversation with your clinician about. And in the opposite side, if something was really helpful or you you think you really benefited from it, let them know that too. And the more you're able to work and give your clinician feedback and work together, the, the better chance you're going to have of doing things that will actually be helpful. I think, again, it's like what we've talked about in every other thing we've talked about today is there's such a lack of awareness. So again, people walk into therapy and think that it's going to look one way. And I don't know if it's just because it's the way it's portrayed in the media or whatever. And that's not what it is. And there's a lot of different ways it could be. And I think that is important as well. Sometimes I get really annoyed at how the media <laughs> portrays people. You're, I'm going to say this a public service announcement here. Your clinician should not have sex with you. If your clinician is going to date you, that is not okay. The licensing board <laughs> needs to know. There's so many TV shows where that ends up happening and it drives me crazy. So your clinician should not have sex with you. Uh, but going back to more common types of therapy, there's a lot of different types that vary in the level of directiveness, the level of specificity, so how much focus they're going to put on trauma, and the people who are involved. So some of our more general counselors, what we think of as kind of the core, all of your clinicians, if they're good, really should be helpful people who care about you. They should want to understand your perspective and your viewpoint. They should have hope that you're going to get better and be engaged and wanting to hear from you. So having that good relationship with someone is the core that should be there in any type of therapy that you go to. There are some types of therapy and they're, they're often called uh, person-centered or client-centered or humanistic. And those types of therapy, and if, you're, if they don't have a label at all, this is maybe one of the more general types, they're very client-led. So if the, if the individual comes in for therapy, the clinician is really interested in what they want to talk about, what's on their mind in that moment, what seems important to them. And the belief is that if the client is given a healing and safe relationship and safe space, they will they'll lead their own progress and they'll end up knowing what they need and being able to make those choices. So that if you're in that type of therapy, that's one where your clinician's probably not giving you a lot of direction. They're, they're not uh, probably going to give you homework assignments. They're, they're really going to be letting you kind of steer the ship. And I think that can be really helpful for trauma victims in stages where maybe they feel very fragile. They, they just the idea, the, the avoidance is very, very, I mean, the avoidance is going to be high no matter what, but you're so afraid and so overwhelmed that the idea of someone pushing you to talk about your trauma is just unbearable. This might be a good choice for you to go to someone that'll let you move at your own pace, that will support you. Can also be helpful if there's those really strong trust issues. I'm, I need to work up and build to talking about this. That can be really helpful. 
there's a type called interpersonal that will focus a lot on relationships, both the relationship between the client and the clinician, as well as the client and other relationships in their life. So that's the focus. And I'm, I'm doing some generalizations here, but these are kind of the, the main emphases. And then there's a type called cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. That's the type that I do. The treatment I do is a specific type of it. CBT focuses on thoughts, feelings, and behaviors related to sort of general life as well as things more specifically. This type of treatment is, it's collaborative, so they're going to work with you, but it might be more directive. So they're, they might be leading and having some ideas. It would be one of the ones that's maybe a little bit more likely to, to assign homework or ask people to do things. And it could be kind of goal and problem focused. So those are different types. And then within the CBT, there are some, there are some trauma-focused treatments. So these are ones that are specifically designed for trauma or PTSD. If you if you choose to do one of those treatments, the pros are they tend to be very effective for a lot of people. We use research and evidence to suggest these are going to be helpful for these types of experiences and symptoms. Some of the cons are they often are more directive and more intense. So someone might want you to, to kind of jump right in. They're going to want to talk about the trauma in much more detail. They may not want to talk as much about other areas of life. So these will be a very focused, very specialized type. Something that can be really, I think, is a, a really nice option for people if they want. If you're not really sure, if you're interested or ready for therapy, you can go to one of the more general clinicians, try a more general approach, test it out, move in your own speed and do some of that. Many people will have great benefit from that. Sometimes though, people will, will go through this type of therapy and, and find that although they might be feeling better in other ways, their trauma symptoms aren't getting better. And it is not uncommon by the time I work with people that they've been through three or four prior clinicians, they've done therapy all their life, they've tried all these different things and nothing has really been helpful. And sometimes that's because they maybe need that more specialized, that more intensive trauma-focused treatment. And I really appreciate, I think in general, and I think this is the goal of, of this podcast, that we need to do a better job talking to each other and working across our, our areas and our lines. And I, I'll have clients that'll come to me and say, I've been working with this clinician and they've said, I'm not really sure what else to do. Maybe you should try a trauma focused therapy. And I love that because that's going to be much more useful to that person than continuing to work with someone for another year of life or another, you know, however long and, and not really making that progress. So I think all of these options can be really good choices depending on what the person's looking for, what they're interested in. And there are other options that I haven't mentioned. So please don't think this is an exhaustive list, but these are just a few that I'm highlighting. And so even just having some general sort of idea of what do I want from therapy might allow you when you're, when you're calling someone to set up an appointment or you're looking on the websites to try and figure out what would therapy with this person be like to get a sense if that's going to be a good fit or not. There's also, and I know I've just talked for a very long time here, there are some really great trauma resources. There's some websites and there are ones that, is it okay if I mention other <laughs> websites here? So the National Center for PTSD is 
it's through the VA, but and it's a lot of veteran-specific information, but trauma symptoms and trauma treatments are pretty similar across trauma types. And the National Center for PTSD has some really great patient-centered handouts that say, here's what this type of treatment is like. Here's what this one is like, pros and cons. They have short video clips of people who've been through it. And so I think uh, because there are so many resources out there in trauma therapy, if somebody's interested, they actually could do a little bit of research on their own to get an idea of what they think they're most interested in and what might be a good fit. I think it's so important. And again, people who have been through sexual trauma, they've had, you know, the control of their own lives and their bodies, at least for some period of time taken away from them. So emphasizing again, that even within treatment, it is your call, your practitioner is there to help you. And you're going to make some of those decisions together based on what your practitioner thinks is best for you, depending on where you are in your journey and your own life experiences, but you get to make that call. And I think that people need to know that and maybe Absolutely. less afraid of, getting help. This one visual keeps popping up in my mind because I think about it all the time to try to illustrate that healing isn't linear. So it shows like what people think that healing is supposed to be. It's like a straight line, but then there's beside it, there's another one where it's like the squiggly lines all over the place. Some of it going backwards and then forwards because it does take time. And for some people, this can be a lifelong process. And so, you know, that's why we do what we do at Conum Lad is because over the course of time, there's a lot of expense that can go into this and it's not cheap. But in terms of maybe, you know, on the front end or somebody's really, you know, needs to get help now and they can't afford those kind of treatments or therapy, are there any free or low cost options that are available for people to be able to seek out so that they can get help? One nice thing about the trauma field is if you're in a large city, medium to large city, there are often really great nonprofits available. So a lot of cities will have uh, organizations where if you are a trauma survivor, you can get free counseling, whether it's individual counseling or group counseling you know, even just support groups can be really helpful for some people. There are oftentimes you can find some free or low cost trauma therapy services, which I think is great. Sometimes the services that you might receive in, in some of those places might be a little bit more general. So you're going to have people that are really informed about trauma. They're going to be very trauma sensitive and trauma informed, but depending on their training and their backgrounds, they may not all be the specialized structured trauma focused treatments, but sometimes there are too. It just depends on the organization. But if you've never done therapy before and you're interested in trauma therapy, trying some of the free options is a great first place to start. The other thing I'll, I'll just mention, if you are a college student, almost all colleges and universities have college counseling centers that typically offer free or really low-priced counseling services, and that's a great resource. College counseling centers are very aware of trauma as well. There's a lot of sexual assault that occurs on college campuses for, for various reasons. And so a good college counseling center should have awareness of sexual assault and trauma and trauma responses. So that's another great option. A lot of areas will have sliding scale clinics, either through various other 
nonprofits or community mental health centers. If you're in an area that has a training program for psychology or counseling or things, there are sometimes training clinics housed within those schools that are open to the community. So that's sometimes an option. There are often some free and low cost options for trauma therapy. Good. That's great. That's a lot of resources. I think it's important to note that through colleges, employee, a lot of employers have EAPs or employee assistance programs where you can get at least like six sessions or whatever, depending on your coverage for free while you're trying to figure it out or insurance or Medicaid. The cost is still going to be determinative based on what your coverage is if you do have coverage. In addition to that, I want to point out for listeners that on our website, there is an interactive map of Indiana by county, and you can just go and click on your county, and it will show you what the sexual violence resources are around you, and that's a good place to start. You can at least call them and say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. This is what my daughter is looking for. My son, what where do you recommend that we go? We also have a couple links to some national organizations that can help people find resources if they're in their own states, if they're not in Indiana. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but I want to ask your opinion. What can loved ones do to support those going through therapy? And maybe even more importantly, what do you definitely not want to do? Yes, I love that you said that. I've done a lot of trauma-informed care talks to individuals with various professional backgrounds and different levels of experience with trauma. And I always include a what not to do slide because I think there's a lot of things that are instinctual and that sort of feel natural to a person that can be really misinterpreted by an individual who's been through trauma. So I think some things not to do are helpful. One thing that I think is really important is just thinking about the language and the questions that you ask when you talk with someone who's been through trauma. There's a lot of questions that are asked very innocently that lead to an individual blaming themselves. Any variation of did you XYZ, where you come up with a possible approach that the person could have taken, and you're asking this person, did you do this? Did you do that? Sometimes, not always, but but frequently, that gets heard by someone as you should have XYZ. If you were smarter, more competent, you would have thought of this and you could have gotten out of it. So I think being really careful. Now, obviously, there are people in professions that have to get details about what happened. So you have to ask what happened next. Did you do this? Did you not? If you're if you're in that type of situation, just being really careful even to say things like, there aren't right or wrong responses. You know, I, this is part of my job. I'm going to have to ask a lot of questions, but I'm just interested in what did happen without sort of communicating that the idea that there's right or wrong responses. If you're someone who's not in that position where you have to ask those types of questions, maybe just trying resisting a little bit from that. And I'll tell you, I think what Again, I want to stress that these things are not, I don't think they're done maliciously. I think what happens is when individuals hear about trauma happening to someone else, it makes them feel vulnerable. The recognition that someone I love was raped brings up a new vulnerability to me that I could be raped too. And part of what that person may do is then go into, if this happened to me, what would I do so that I could have prevented this or I could have kept myself safe. And then that 
leads into these questions about, did you try this? Did you try that? Again, that can be really painful for the person who's hearing that. And in general, and I think on the to-do side, the most important thing that individuals need to hear is that this is not their fault. They didn't do something to deserve this and that you believe them. So that's another thing that can be really damaging is a message that suggests that you don't believe what they're telling you. In general, just being there, being willing to hear what they do want to tell you, providing those positive encouraging. Just being present and and willing to listen and support someone is really important. Social support is actually one of the biggest factors that determines how someone recovers from a trauma. So people with strong social support and healthy coping skills and things prior to trauma are able to process through things not easy, but easier than someone that is really isolated, that doesn't have that support, and maybe doesn't have prior coping skills. So it sounds like, in terms of loved ones, a really important part of it is just showing up. We did an episode with a woman who is the survivor of a home invasion sexual assault, and she was shot twice. And she really emphasized how much it meant to her and her family that their network was just there immediately. From the second that the 911 call went in, not just the authorities, but also friends and family really rallied around them. And I think this is also an important piece to remind ourselves, like we started in the beginning, there is no one reaction and there is no one need or right response. And so when trauma itself involves a loss of power, a loss of predictability, and a loss of control. So one thing I really try and highlight is in interactions, people who've been through trauma, we want to give those things back. We want to give this person, if they're ready for it, some choice. What do they want? Do they want to be surrounded by people? And if so, let's do that. Do they want to be by themselves and they just want to cry in their room? If so, if that's really what they want, let them do that. Don't force a bunch of people on them because then you're taking away their decision. Whatever is best for them. So yeah, definitely feeling that out and just, you know, acting accordingly. Don't just overwhelm them with your presence. Yeah. And what a lot of us do that's really tricky is that what would I want in this situation? And then they just try and, you know, presume that for the other person and, and just recognizing, you know, they're going to, their needs and their wants are going to change over time too. And so just being there for the long run and, and being sensitive to what choices can I let this person make? Now, if you're worried they're a danger or harm to themselves, maybe don't leave them alone. Maybe you sit on the side of the room with a book and just kind of ignore them. So you're there, but you're not sort of smothering them. Another piece that I want to mention that I bring up a lot is as someone is recovering, I think trauma survivors are they're very strong. They may not always feel strong, but they are strong. And there's a lot of resiliency. And sometimes loved ones can get into a place where they're protecting people from things they don't need to be protected from. In in PTSD field, we think avoidance is something that really contributes to continued trauma reactions in PTSD. Sometimes really well-meaning loved ones will promote avoidance (laughs) above and beyond what that person needs. And so if someone's kind of on, you know, they're trying to test out, like, I've been afraid to leave the house, but I'm thinking maybe I might leave the house. 
encourage them to leave the house. You know, as long as it's safe, you don't want to give someone a message like, are you sure you're ready for that? Like, you might just need a little bit more time. Like, the more you're sort of suggesting they're not capable of handling it, that they are sort of broken or whatever it may be, when they hear that, they can internalize that. So survivors need people to believe in them and encourage them when they're ready for it. Don't overwhelm them. Don't shove them out of the house before they're ready. But when you're starting to see signs of growth and progress, being supportive of that is really helpful. This is difficult stuff because, again, there's no instruction manual even being there for someone, it's going to depend on their specific needs and, and where they're at on that journey. And so it's, it is really, really hard on people who want, want to do the right thing and they're not always sure what to do. And we talked a little bit earlier about the potential psychological effects on the support network. So what can they do for their indirect exposure to the trauma? One thing that I think is pretty important that I'm going to start with is the trauma survivor most of the time, is not the best person to support the loved one through the event. So there are times when in telling someone about the trauma, the person they're telling gets so upset that the person who's actually been through the trauma turns into the counselor for that person. That's not an ideal scenario there most of the time. So I'd say find your own sort of different social support or network. Getting therapy as a loved one can be really helpful too. So if that's something you're interested in, but even just if you have your own sort of friend, your own coworker, if you're in the field and you're talking about your work, finding someone that is willing and able to hear and support you separate from the victim, I think can be, can be really useful. If you have someone supporting you, if you're taking care of yourself as well um, for individuals, for those of us in the field, and this is something you mentioned too, sometimes there's a poll, I can do more work if I keep going, if I work extra hours, if I do this, you have to take care of yourself to be able to help the person who you're trying to help, whether it's your loved one or the people in your profession. So finding a way to do that without putting a burden on the trauma survivor themselves is a really important and useful strategy. That is such good advice. I see that. I think almost in every case I've ever worked on, I see at least a little bit of that where there's kind of guilt too. And then they think that they don't deserve to ask for help because they weren't the person who experienced the sexual trauma. So I appreciate that. Okay. So we talked about a lot today. We've been through a lot of stuff. I really appreciate it all. Dr. Elwood, if there's one takeaway from today that you would hope that listeners really, really resonates with listeners, what would it be? Yes. And this is a little bit different than something we've mentioned here, but one of the things I love about working in this field and specifically in therapy is there are great treatments for PTSD out there. There's a lot of great research on it. There was a really well done study that followed people that completed PTSD treatment and they brought them back between five to 10 years later and they found the majority of people that had improved in those treatments stayed improved for five to 10 years afterwards. So there are wonderful treatments for trauma. This is not something you have to live with forever. Now, 
the event will never go away. There will be effects and changes forever, but when we're talking about PTSD, you don't have to live with it forever. And so that kind of knowledge in combination with if your therapy isn't working, maybe try something else or communicate. If you like your clinician, communicate with them about your needs. There is hope. People get better. I see people get better all the time. And I think that is what lets me stay in this field. And I think that's what many of us who who do work in the area that helps us keep going is knowing that there is room for change and that there are differences to be made. You know, we're, we're not going to solve the whole problem today, but I see people get better over and over again. And so that is the, the message I want to get to people is trauma does not, trauma symptoms, PTSD in specifically, don't have to be lifelong. They're not terminal sentences. Please try. I know it's risky to try, but it can be worth it to try. Thank you for that. That's so important. I absolutely true. And thank you, Dr. Iwood, so much for being here. You've provided so much good information. I hope it, I think it will be very helpful for a lot of our listeners. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you to our listeners. If you're tuning in here, you care. If you find value in our program, please continue to tune in and to share this podcast with others. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and I will see you next time.